Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Dr. Barney Gilbert. Barney studied at Oxford and Harvard universities before working as a doctor for the NHS. His experiences juggling multiple pages and sending faxes on graveyard hospital shifts led him to start Forward Health with fellow doctor Lydia Yarlett and serial entrepreneur Philip Mundy. Their product is already saving healthcare professionals time and improving patient outcomes by providing a secure, efficient system for communication and collaboration. Featured in every big publication you care to name, and with $5.2 million in total funding since launch in 2016, their ultimate goal is to connect healthcare around the world. So without further ado, we bring you Dr. Barney Gilbert. Hello, everybody. We are live. It is 2019, and we are joined by Dr. Barney Gilbert. Barney, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be with you guys. Barney, is you're one of those rare individuals who's managed to get a medical degree, be a doctor, and start a company, which is uh, no mean feat. And you are the founder of Forward Health. So how did you bridge the gap between sort of going on this trajectory where a lot of people, you know, from 15, 16 are deciding to be doctors to mm. then transitioning into becoming an entrepreneur? Mm. I think probably in a snapshot, not consciously. I think I was somebody who as a teenager was really keen to be a doctor. And I think as soon as you become a doctor, it's clear that there are lots of problems around that need fixing and everybody can see that. And then it sort of becomes a, a question of, do you have the desire and the stamina and the willpower to try and solve them? Um, and yeah, that was to a degree how, how Forward got got started. I'm definitely not a lone warrior in this. There's uh, two two co-founders, Philip and Lydia, who, who have been with me uh, since the start and, and, and um, have been fantastic support in this journey. So uh, yeah, we've, we've got up and running. But your trajectory was, so you, you met us in at Oxford and then you had you went to Harvard for a bit. Yeah, that's right. To do, but it wasn't to do medicine. You see, I'm, I'm somebody who's always been fascinated in I think two things. One is how people think, and the other is how systems and society, not just in healthcare, but, but beyond that, are knitted together. And so for me, even in healthcare, it was always about thinking about problems from a system or kind of macro lens. Um, and so partway through medical school, just, just at the end of medical school, I went to Harvard to study economics. Um, and for me, that was fantastic because it just gave this completely new dimension to mm-hmm. thinking about things and then coming back to the UK eventually to work as a, a, a doctor was a completely different experience to what it would have been because I had this clarity on how um, I thought that the system was operating uh, and the things I was observing around me. So do you think without that experience in, in the US you maybe wouldn't have come to the same you know, you'd just be being a, a doctor now rather than yeah, I think, I think highly likely. One of the great things that, that I did whilst living in the US was work with a, a brilliant kind of product-led healthcare company uh, called Wellframe, which taught me a lot about how a successful product-driven company actually emerges from nothing into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a team of about 15 people when I was uh, working there. And just, just learning a, a huge amount um, huge amount there that I'm happy to delve, delve into, but that really gave the, the confidence to come back and think, hang on, maybe there is a problem I can take on, um, y- you know, myself and, and, w- and with a team. What about um, Lydia and Philip, your, your co-founders? Mm. Mm. 
so they, they've got an amazing story. So when I met them together, they were dating and they're now married. Okay. Um, so they're they're a you know romantic and married couple. Um, How's that third wheeling in your company? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm essentially <laughs> this is our I think our internal uh, get to know the team describes me as a professional third wheel. Um, so Lydia was a friend from Oxford at medical school and she met Philip doing a yoga class in London and Philip was someone who'd been building companies for 10 years or so before this one mm. um, and his background is in uh, originally software engineering and, and virtual reality kind of before that became a, a mega thing and he was determined really through chatting with Lydia who was who was dating as I say and then me you know, around that time that healthcare was an industry worth getting involved in um, and if the opportunity that you're looking for is to use product to solve problems that are actually meaningful for people mm. there's probably no better space to be well because we we have had a long history with healthcare in terms of the fundraising um space mm. and, and what i used to be faced with back in 2010 was a lot of speculative drug mm. trials discoveries approval processes which were these enormously long protracted processes um, requiring huge amounts of cash before they either, you know, ever turned a penny of revenue. Um, and it's seen that data mm. and technology offers a, a completely different spin on addressing mm. healthcare issues without having to go through the same amount of regulatory approvals. Mm. And so therefore you can get people like Philip mm. who can take their previous entrepreneurial experience and mm. start to apply it in a sort of software engineering um, problem solving mm. capacity. Well, where, where did the germ of the idea come from? Mm. So Lydia was speaking to Philip a lot about communication being broken in healthcare. It's really obvious to probably everyone that's ever worked as a doctor in, in the NHS and in most Western health systems that carrying a, a pager in your pocket or using workarounds like Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or Snapchat or WeChat are not adequate for communicating critical information about your patients. Um, and the three of us in about September of 2016 basically fleshed this out over a series of conversations and started wireframing an app um, that we thought would be our best fit solution. And it's always, you know, when you look back on things, it's always an MVP that was horrible at the time, but it was our best fit solution to solve this really meaningful problem for people working in, in the UK health service, in the NHS. Um, the way we try and think about the question you've asked now is, because everyone's so aware of this problem, whether they're working as a junior doctor, a really senior doctor, a nurse, a dietitian in the community, a physio, whoever they might be in this massive system, everybody has communication challenges. They're all slightly nuanced and slightly different, but they want them solved. And so they, in a sense, are the founder of their own solution. And that's how we try and perceive it, because that really empowers this network and community of people to solve their communication problems. And, and I think there's a lot of myths that go around about what the existing processes are in the NHS. I mean, if you can paint us a picture as a, as a junior doctor trying to sort of fill in paperwork and stuff, how bad is it in mm. terms of data transfer? Is it very manual? Because you were you were practicing as a junior yeah, doctor. Yeah, that's right. So when this was when this was kicking off, and for the for the two years around that, I was still working in the system. And and the answer is it's really painful. Um, this is why you know if you look at Lydia and my uh, year group of friends from medical school, most or, or approaching most somewhere probably around fifty percent have left current practice in the NHS. And these are people that have been trained uh, heavily subsidised by the government 
to go and become doctors that have had dreams of being doctors since they're very young who are since they're very young yeah. and who are still fairly young and who are uh positive people who get the positivity stamped out of them by the system and that that is you know hours per day of bureaucratic work there's a guy called atul gawande who's a, a actually a professor at harvard but a surgeon in the u.s as well who writes brilliantly for the new yorker on this stuff and he wrote a great article about why doctors hate computers in healthcare recently and uh, i definitely recommend anybody reading it but it basically says whatever system you're working in this is just painful and it shouldn't be there are there are pains that healthcare workers go through with it and with um, technology that are just not accepted in other industries mm -hmm. is that because the the healthcare industry is is it fair to say that it's notoriously slow at um, bringing in new technologies or even just change? Mm. Yeah, and there's two sides of that coin. That's definitely the truth. The, the positive side of that coin is the system is set up like that because patients are being cared for and these are often life or death decisions that are being made on any technology or with any piece of regulation. And so it's important that there is rigor in all of that. On the flip side, when you're trying to innovate and, you know, dare we say even disrupt, <laughs> it comes with a pain barrier. There is a lot of, um, there are many painful hurdles to overcome. And the processes, whether it's for governance, procurement, um, establishing organic networks, all of these things are painful. Well, and I guess the, when the NHS is such a considerable employer, any technology you roll out, I assume, you have to be comfortable that most of the employees within the NHS can skillfully use that. So. Mm. Um, you're always going to be hamstrung versus, I guess, private enterprise. Because like, what, what's what's the difference in the way that private clinics can work with patient data and mm. those relationships? Is that considerably mm. more efficient? So the, the truth is, often not. There are there are some cases where things are more streamlined in the private sector, and generally that, that's because the the networks for procurement or for implementation are smaller. It's not because the laws are different. Mm. Um, generally speaking, the private sector in the UK. Um, health sector is, is going to be regulated under GDPR just like the the NHS will be and, and and when you got a little look at how America's private healthcare system worked potentially when you were over mm. there um, did you notice any stark differences in the, the way that is because again it, it's sort of a bit of a black box mm. we just make assumptions about how mm. the American healthcare system works but mm. what was your view on well that? just like the NHS it's something that within a year or so you can get to understand quite deeply just like the NHS, there are nuances of the system that you that you need to understand if you're going to navigate successfully. And the, the types of stakeholder, particularly with insurers that you might need to engage as, a, as an early company, are different. The major difference and the thing that's so positive and that gave me confidence whilst in the US is that you get support from your senior clinicians, from investors, from university and academic backers, much earlier in the US than you might in the UK. So if you have a brilliant idea at a hackathon at MIT on a Saturday morning, by Sunday night, if you're expert and you've pulled together a good team, you could have funding for it. Wow. And that's completely different to guys in the NHS. And the game is changing here. Um, you know, there's a program called the, the Entrepreneurs Program, the Clinical Entrepreneurs Program, run by a, a kind of coach and a mentor of mine called Tony Young, which is fantastic and has got more than 100 entrepreneurs in, in healthcare together to be part of a network like that. But the, the, uh, the bar hasn't got quite so high yet. And also there's, is there, there's no um, special avenue for funding. Like NHS doesn't have a, a budget for investing or giving grants to 
to um, health projects. Yeah, that's 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 right. There are there are some grants that are out there, but often chasing down a grant is really tough. Requires serious kind of quantitative mm. backing, and the grant might only be for ten to fifty thousand pounds. So it's hard to get a lot done with that. Because um, I my experience of of the healthcare industry is friends who went through medicine at Imperial, I did biology. Mm, mm. Um, and you'd think in the melting pot of Imperial, there's a perfect environment for um, computer science students to be liaising and mm. meeting with doctors. But the doctors were cleaved off a lot doing their own mm. thing and with their own union and stuff like that. Should have gone to yoga classes together. Okay, yeah, right, well, if that's how you have to meet co-founders these days, <laughs> then so be it. Um, and, and that was probably a bit of a failure of the system. I think somebody wasn't, and I don't think the discussions were being pushed towards doctors about getting a, a meaningful understanding of technology mm. available to them and and similarly I don't think enough was being done on the other side to sort of match up to the to the doctors and the healthcare departments um, so if that can be you know not successfully addressed in Imperial where you've mm. got a small tiny campus uh, you can see why it's not not working at a larger scale mm. for sure um, can we take a step back for a moment I'd yeah. like to sort of get a better handle on how you went from that idea between the three of you mm to executing it to mm. where it is now. Mm. And in fact, it'd probably be helpful just to give us your sort of nutshell su summary mm. of what Forward Health mm. is about. Mm. Okay, so Forward as its big vision wants to, and, is, and, and, and we'll get there, we're sure, connect healthcare for everyone. That's what we're out to do. And our, our mission that we're on currently is to build the largest network of healthcare professionals in the world. We're currently only in the UK and for deliberate reason that, that we can explore if, if you guys want to. It's an app at its core, and it is becoming a platform, um, which is really important in healthcare in terms of how data moves around within different parts of a system. But at its core, it's an app. We've made something available to healthcare professionals all across the UK from their own app store to download something that's core functioning is instant messaging. That's got to be secure, and there's work that you've got to do to make that secure over a tool like, say, WhatsApp. But to make it fit for purpose in the healthcare space? Well, to make it secure for purpose. And then in terms of fit for purpose, there's a feature set around that, which can be quite simple from the start, mm -hmm. which adds value way beyond what any other instant messaging tools might be able to do. Those can be simple things like connecting, uh, a bit like on Slack, you have channels of, of, of your team. Um, you can do similar things, but you can also start to connect um, across departments in a hospital, say, or across healthcare regions and wider networks. And you can start to channel referrals and advice about patients right across the system. Who so. defines those, those specific channels that you create and use? It sounds like individuals can download the app, but how mm. do you establish sort of a, a meaningful base of operations mm. within each organization to, you mm. know, is it the Chelsea and Westminster mm. X-ray department mm. who have their own channel, mm. or do you sell it to Chelsea and Westminster who then subdivide it? A, mm. How does you how do you create the organisational structure within the app? Sure. So, the big macro point here is it for us it's all organic. It is not mandated technology, and that is a shift change in how healthcare implements te technology of any kind. Mm -hmm. But obviously, for organic uh, tech to be successful, it has to be popular. It has to be shared, and the way to make it popular, and we haven't cracked all of this at all, or we would we would have ten million users in more than just far more than just the European system. The way to make it uh, popular is to add value immediately. So people that, for example, do things that are image heavy in their day-to-day -day clinical workflow, so people that might want to, you're right, share x-rays or share wound images or share images of bed sores between particular nursing types. 
um, or share photos of rashes between dermatology doctors. These are groups of clinicians for whom secure image sharing is going to add big value. There are several areas like that, but that's one where you think, okay, if we can get a hub of that kind of user within a particular network, let's expand from there. And let's have this idea of a wedge rollout where each part of a wedge, there's a narrow funnel at the start and a very wide funnel at the end. And you're trying to connect a highly activated network by adding in groups and departments that get more and more value from the from from them being added. And what was the existing way to um, share large image files before? I mean, was mm. it posting x-rays? Mm. Was it delivering them by hand? Pigeon. Pigeon. I mean, you laugh at that those are the sorts of techniques that wouldn't be frowned upon. Um, broadly speaking, you can walk around and go and find people in person. You can radio page someone if you want to transfer a message over a landline phone network. But people were fed up with those methods, so had largely pivoted to tools like WhatsApp, where you get an app. So we know that the health force is, is ready to do this. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that something like WhatsApp is inadequate. It doesn't have quite, quite have the features you need to communicate well in healthcare, and it's not secure. And so is, is this, I'm trying to understand uh, whether I'm sort of putting it in like a WeChat bucket or a mm. WhatsApp chat. Is it, does it have like modular add-ons that may be more specific for different use cases? So if I went in as a, uh, uh, a general user, you've mm. got feature sets that I can mm. then add into the app? Mm. So we are working towards that at the moment. Generally speaking, you will have a, a standardized profile which has a feature set which are generally useful, though depending on what the, the type of user you are, certain things will, will add more value than others. So for example, for junior doctors seeking advice from senior doctors, there there is inbuilt capacity to close a loop on advice that you've you've sought out or to refer a patient to somebody. That sounds incredibly simple. It's incredibly important to get it right because if this information is lost or if loops aren't closed appropriately, patients fall through the cracks. Um, and to go back to, to Ollie's point, um, you, you, you wireframe this, you came together, created the ideas, MVP. Mm. How do you, did you then bring it to life? Who did mm. you pitch mm -hmm. to? Who did you lobby? Mm. Um, so we raised some very uh, early investment and had a loan up front. We did the initial engineering work offshore uh, in a with a central European team who have been um, fantastic and then commenced the process of constant learning and refinement and going around like any product driven company thinking about how can we have a really u lean approach to our user experience and how can we make sure that the questions we're asking of our users are the right ones to, to, to figure out if we're creating value. Um, and then in terms of actually selling it into places, mm. you mentioned that you're, you're trying to grow it organically as mm. opposed to the traditional NHS mm. model of top down. Mm. So you're going around to particular institutions and presenting it to basically to the consumer rather than to the, uh, the powers that be, is mm. that right? Yeah, so there is a there is a big differential in our model between users and potential buyers. We've said to all healthcare professionals, this is and always will be free for you to use. If we want to generate revenue from it, and we have experimented with different ways of doing this, and we have not settled on one particular model for, okay. our, for our life cycle, it's, it's essential that we guarantee NHS trust that we will not expand our costing outside of their budget. So we lock in a particular price point and, and we'll, we'll respect that, uh, and we have trust incidentally as a, as a core value uh, in the company and we don't want to kind of mess people around on that. Would it be seen as you're holding people to ransom at that point if you've got lots of valuable data that's being exchanged and processes that now rely on mm. your technology mm. that you 
yeah, if you if you say, well, that's going to cost you £30 per user per month, mm. uh, the pain point for them to, to not keep up with the technology will be mm. considerable. And mm. also that's quite irresponsible when the whole aim is to save lives and keep mm. um, business working efficiently. But doesn't it also cause a blockage when, you know, say doctor in X hospital wants to start using your your app but can't because they're not licensing it? So this, this is a complicated and emerging area of healthcare mm. because post-GDPR in May 2018, essentially every healthcare organisation needs to, needs to control the patient data that is moving through it. And so we need to make sure that we sign um, agreements with trust to make sure that the way that we are moving patient data around is compliant with the way that we want um, to do it ourselves and that they need legally to do it themselves. So that is essential, but that's actually separate from a sales force. Mm. And we have sold forward as a very classical SaaS product on numerous occasions. And what we're trying to figure out as a, uh, an ongoing commercial model is, do we want this to be per month per user classical SaaS licensing? That's a very foreign model in healthcare, mm. very established in the, in the corporate world. Do we want it to be uh, essentially freemium institutional pricing where you have a set or capped fee, and then for any premium services above that, we add on through various ways of, of doing the, the pricing for that. Or do we look to roll this out for research and development purposes purely, potentially free of charge, and then think about how the data may be displayed to organizations in ways that is powerful to them and selling them dashboard functions and, uh, and other bespoke analytics? Do we integrate with their current systems in a way that we charge for? Or do we just uh, process data and learn how to structure it efficiently and not even look to, to monetize it. Interesting, because it's funny that some consultants can come on site to organizations like NHS Trust and charge them a fortune to go in, collect some data, and then make changes or suggest changes where you'd already be privy to all that information from the inside. So I imagine even to, to external consultants looking to change make, mm. um, if they can charge you know, 1,500 quid mm. a day per consultant, mm. um, that, that information on the movements around the hospital will be mm. invaluable to them. Mm. But then maybe you could go a step further of actually when you're sitting on that information, you can start to sort of AI triage and mm. start to look at that model, which I guess is something well. What's Novastone's model? Novast well, Novastone, so mm. uh, a company we mm. were um, raised a lot of money for, uh, was crudely speaking WhatsApp for, for banking relationships. Mm. Um, for And presumably you've been called crudely uh whatsapp for healthcare mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's a good way to imprint the model in people's head but they are able to charge a huge implementation fee to banks because banks are, are, are sitting on the corporate side of mm. um the SaaS models mm. uh, and then the licensing fees are considerable because the efficiencies can be directly turned into revenue upside for mm. the, for the bank mm. um if they can speak to clients and and transact faster mm. Uh, more deals go through and therefore that can be uh, attributed to more revenue for the mm. company. Whereas mm. I imagine cost reduction for the NHS, they'll just keep on trying to get you to, to reduce as many costs as humanly possible. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a comparison with the way governments work and the way political cycles work, um, which is obviously a big driver of how the NHS functions and how its processes have institutionalized. And that comparison is it's very tempting for us to look to provide an in-year cash saving for an NHS trust because then they can say, this has been knocked off of our balance sheet this year. We will buy you for a, for a price beneath that mm. and make this a very, very obvious business case. That's generally how NHS business works. If you have a dream and a vision beyond that and you, for example, say, we don't just want to save healthcare professionals time. This is not purely an efficiency tool. 
it is ultimately about patient outcomes. Even if patients are passively discussed on our, pro on our platform now and are not active participants in that system, although that is our aspiration, um, we want to improve outcomes for patients and we want to find a way ultimately to be able to make that a sustainable business. That's a long-term way of playing a business model in healthcare, just like a politician doesn't want to play a very long game and why certain funding models in, in politics like uh, social impact financing, for example, might be a more strategic way of, of actually ending financing a, a political programme because you don't have to get the returns on it before you're voted for that year. Yeah, cool. that's a very good point. Um, and, and in terms of the effect you're having, uh, have you got any data that's coming out from provisional studies of how much efficiency you're 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 achieving, or how you're just improving anecdotally the lives mm. of junior doctors or mm. other members of uh, mm. medical staff? So we we are doing some really exciting research with a big NHS collaboration. Part of that is quantitative, and part of it is qualitative. At the stage we're at, a lot of the qualitative stuff and the use case generation and the user storytelling is the most powerful stuff that we hear it's it's really inspiring and and powerful the quantitative stuff exists and is also um noteworthy so for example an, an early study that we did showed that when used versus existing communication methods in a hospital for a series of junior doctors forward saves about 45 minutes per shift so if you're doing an eight hour shift that is a very significant percentage time saving. And obviously for the trust, this is where the modeling becomes interesting. You do not simply fire your workforce for the last X percent of their working day. They continue to work. Mm. They simply channel that time back into better care for patients. And then you have to think about what's the indirect outcome then financially that we are working on. Well, it might be patient satisfaction or it might be particular patient outcomes that do improve because these highly skilled, highly trained doctors are now spending 45 minutes a day more with them. So these models are hard to prove out, mm. um, but the, the work we're doing quantitatively is starting to get there. It's almost rehumanizing the patient care by freeing mm. up doctors' time. Um, you allow them to actually have more contact with patients and, and probably in a better bedside manner as mm. well. I mean, in your experience, I don't know how long you were practicing as mm. a junior doctor, mm. um, but of an eight-hour shift, mm. how much of it was... Um, actively helping a patient and how much of it was mm. paperwork mm. when you're when you're a, a, a true junior doctor like in the first year of your your work which is called the foundation program or the internship in the u.s you might spend 50 or more percent of your time doing bureaucratic tasks pr probably closer to 80 percent often actually you might have 10 percent or 20 percent with with patients at, at the bedside wow. um and you, you can imagine why even in the course of a year uh, morale among doctors tails off because um, you don't you don't train to be a, a secretary yeah yeah can, can I ask about that just uh, no entrepreneur hat on just, mm. as, just as a doctor how bad is it that you're always expected to fill in paperwork correctly make decisions correctly when you are exhausted potentially overworked and and seemingly not paid commensurate to the amount of risk your job mm. um, puts you under mm. Um, what, what, how, how stressful is the environment Generally speaking, it's quite stressful. I think I was fortunate in getting through some of those experiences with less stress than other people. But the particularly terrifying and stressful experiences tend to be the night shifts because those are when you are most exposed and least supported. And so you're expected to do things that you're not trained for. Mm. And that's when stress levels, particularly when it's fast moving, can become unbearable. You know, I can remember, I've written somewhere about a, a night shift carrying 
what felt like a belt of grenades because these pages were lined up on around you know around my waist and they're going off every minute or 30 seconds and every doctor has this kind of Pavlovian dog response of fear when the thing goes off and you know that that's going to be someone that needs you to help you know you don't really have time for it and you don't know even if you did whether you'd be equipped to, to solve their problem yeah because I, I was going to then get on to the point of trying to compare the stress of that to the stress of creating a company because I think entrepreneurs load themselves with stress and it's self-imposed stress mm. um, which is great because it's fueled by ambition and mm. obviously if a company seemed to be in critically bad health you do attend to it like you mm. would or may do a patient but mm. it's not life and death mm. so I'm trying to get a bit of a barometer of experience mm. to see mm. if it's similar or if actually being a doctor is really cool. the particularly busy phase for me was trying to do both at the same time which is why, <laughs> why, why I made the decision to, to, to step out of medicine they're very different and one of the things that I've found since being kind of full-time as, as an entrepreneur is that you do actually have control of what you're doing and that's one of the amazing things about being a, a founder um, yes there's a, a lot of responsibility and, and, and expectation put on you but you do have control and you can make decisions with executive authority. Whereas as a junior doctor, you, you do feel like a pawn in a big system. And for me, that's actually more stressful. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the big reasons for, for demotivation in any, in any role is if you don't feel like you're in control. Mm. Um, so I think that's, I can't remember where I read it, but it's somewhere advice for employees, if you, if, for employers, if you want your employees to feel motivated, try and make them feel like they have at least some some form of control mm. Mm. yeah because it feels very passive yeah, as a doctor it feels like you could well if you've got 29 pages going off and you <laughs> yeah on a daily basis you don't have a chance to have the, the freedom of space to even think of the solutions but i feel like even if you did propose a solution mm. it would live and die at the the, the coffee counter mm. with a colleague and mm. yeah. it would be no means of implementing it mm. it, it seems to me that one of the things that your system is going to encourage is um the ease with which doctors within the same hospital but also within other hospitals can collaborate mm. um, quickly and efficiently. Mm. And so, for instance, on that night shift when you had all these bombs going off, to stick with your analogy, <laughs> um, would that help in that you could come and get someone to, to, to sort that one out? Yeah, that's exactly what it's for. So, so we think, so part of this is about... Um, well, I, I read something recently that talked about four C words that could be fundamental to working brilliantly with people in the 21st century. And the C words are communication, which is obviously right at the core of what we're doing. Another one is collaboration. Another one is creativity. And another one is critical thinking. Um, and the, the point about collaboration is collaboration is empowered by great communication. And it's really simple if you think about that use case. You are an isolated person in need of help. You need to be able to communicate with and then ideally work with and collaborate with someone who's got the, the skills all the time to, to help you. Mm. So that, that's absolutely what it's for. And actually, depending on where our lean user experience approach ends up on this journey of, of being a product-led company, we may be more of a collaboration tool than a pure communication tool. Right. Because I imagine, also useful to this process, um, because it's feeling a bit more like a hub-and-spoke model for the healthcare industry in the UK now because as things are getting privatised, that sometimes a, a small walk-in NHS centre is ill-equipped to deal with the patient they are, mm. are handling. And at that point, you want a very quick referral system to somebody who is able to handle mm. that that um, critical condition or whatever it might be. Um, 
So I see something this has been hugely useful that you could potentially get a doctor on the referral network for our instant message mm. and say, look, I've got a patient who is suffering something that's way beyond us. Mm. How's it looking over at your department? Do we mm. send them to Kent or do we send them to Margate mm. to get this treated? Mm. And you can very quickly get the response, which again is saving 20 minutes of decision-making time, which could be life or death for some people. Mm. Um, Isn't that what the internet's for? It's for, well, it's for lots of things, but for <laughs> the easy exchange of really valuable information. Mm. Yeah. And I could just I could just see if, if it's... And if you're still running around in hospitals with um, faxes and mm. things, then mm. how is anyone going to learn from mistakes? Mm. Actually, have you read a book called um, Black Box Thinking? Mm. Yeah. Fantastic it, book. Yeah, because it kind of uh, strikes a chord with this. It's basically, um, it compares the airline industry with the healthcare industry. Interesting. Um, using the black box. So the black box was implemented in airplanes so that they could learn exactly the reasons why any air disaster happened and they've got considerably safer haven't they and they've got like yeah um and and so that but the same hasn't been applied so much mm. in healthcare and so you get you can have the same tragedy avoidable tragedy um happening in several hospitals because they're not there's no channel for them to learn from mm. those mistakes well i well, think that's that's, that's yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is that the nhs is one of the most probably after the military in the uk possibly the most hierarchical structure and you exist, you know, as a rank doctor in a system. And mm. if you dare speak up in a particular, really? you know, that is the uh, old school mentality. There is a shift following that book, um, which actually documents a, a story of a, a a guy whose whose wife sadly passed away in an avoidable incident in uh, under anaesthetic. It was, yeah, really. Where, where anaesthetists went into this locked-in vision and didn't think about other solutions. They were all very senior. No one that was watching felt comfortable speaking up. Uh, and there's a big movement um, in the NHS with, with think, following that case, but also towards patients with things like the My Name Is campaign to always facilitate collaboration and good communication and to crush hierarchy by bringing people together in a, in a democratic way. Mm. Um, and, and, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. Oh, on that note, is it, do you, have you found resistance from curmudgeonly old doctors who, who don't want to prat around <laughs> in an app? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, we face resistance from all sorts of personas within yeah. the system and, and all sorts of people. Yeah, not to pick on curmudgeonly I don't, But I don't doctors. think you can justify the resistance. I'd be amazed mm. to see what the case for the resistance is. Mm. You'd, you'd be surprised when trying to give people value at work what the resistance can be like because we we originally thought that a lot of our user group were averse to technology because they didn't know how to use it and generally speaking that that isn't the lesson generally it's they don't want to use it they know how to because you know if someone's using uh, Facebook Messenger with 100 of their friends and they're ordering their everything they buy on the Amazon app etc etc that they know how to use a smartphone mm-hmm then you go and try and implement forward among a group of community nurses, for example, and you occasionally face questions like, uh, I recently heard somebody say, will, will we be reimbursed for the charging costs at the wall of our phone that we're using for this purpose? So the matter of commodity costs of several pence. That No, no one is facing that level of uh, inquiry or poverty even in, in, in the NHS. To my knowledge, it's purely a resistance and it's saying whatever you do... Quite creative we're, we're not in the excuses yeah. they can come up with. I mean, marks for the for one of the four C's there. I've never yeah. thought to charge somebody for the electricity uh, generation. Because it's quite exciting, this. I could, I'm literally thinking you could link it up to somebody communicating back in real-time stock 
mm. present in a certain part of the hospital, whether you're running out of bandages, needles, mm. this, that, the other in real time. And, and you're getting loads of nodes mm. essentially around an NHS hospital mm. feeding back into a mm. central system where you, 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 the use cases are into the hundreds and thousands and yeah, I mean, because it's, it's kind of timely, because as it, you probably saw on the news this morning that they were talking about the financial woes of the NHS mm. and how there's a plan, I think, for 20 billion by mm. 2023. Mm -hmm. But presumably the ultimate solution is rather than to pump more money into a system mm. that is just struggling because it's an, old, an older system and it just has so much strain on it, um, but to create efficient, better efficiencies within the system. Mm. And it, do you have a, a, a long term? I realise that the problem that you're attacking now is a big one but mm. a long-term um strategy for moving into other areas within the healthcare system mm. so as i touched on for us it's not all about efficiency it's about improving patient outcomes and even that language on efficiency and patient outcomes is very much the language that the government is currently using and to a degree we need to understand that but we, we also want to help redefine that because it's not about patient outcomes it's about actually improving the specific lives of individual patients who are people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And keeping that kind of picture in, in your head as a founder or somebody trying to do something like this is really important because it gives you the, the drive to get through the challenges. So that's, that, that's just really a point on, on the language. But yes, it's about ultimately patience for us, not about efficiency of, of workforce. And but, it, what, but, so, but isn't it... Like by creating the efficiencies, you're you're making the space for doctors to be able to work better, which mm. produces the outcomes. Mm. Isn't mm. isn't that, that, that that's exactly yeah. it? Yeah, because I, I don't I don't want to thrust AI and the futurist type approaches or IoT in hospitals that, that mm. can communicate with these messenger apps. But you know, does that sit within the vision? Mm. Could you have a series of machines around the hospital that start communicating into Doctor, you know, X? Mm to let him know how his patient is doing. Mm. So if you have a system of a, a grenade series of grenades of, you know, going off at one uh, all at once, um, that you can then get updates on how critical each situation is based on the technology feeding back to you, the app user. So it mm. could be like, I, I know that then you get into algorithmic decision making mm. on life and death, which and, is a and, very- And put it on the blockchain too. No, we don't need to be so, so, so cliche, but, but there's, there's gotta be a value in the, the system having IoT Absolutely. devices that can talk. Absolutely. So we love having, we've hired a couple of guys who are fantastic on, on, on head of product and as a CTO, and we're, we're loving discussions that we have about what our roadmap could look like um, beyond what it does look like for the next three or so months. These things are absolutely possibilities and they're not possibilities, they're inevitabilities if we claim a big network. Mm. The real advantage that we have in the approach that we're taking to lean user experience design and understanding the intricacies of healthcare systems are unlike Microsoft, Apple, Google, we have potential for scale of a network. That is inherently valuable. The stuff that comes around the data, the structuring and processing and transfer of it later is going to be a great second problem to solve. But for us, we have to solve the network challenges. Is it always gonna be a bit of a struggle with NHS? Because I, I spoke to somebody once upon a yonder and they said to fire somebody is, is almost like a two year process if provable at all mm. which means if, if it is difficult to say somebody simply is just not adding enough value mm. to this this system mm. yet your technology is trying to push against some mm. of these inherent hurdles mm. do, do you see a vision for how that might be overcome where you've just got underperformers who simply aren't invested in making the system um, run more efficiently mm. they get identified mm. by your platform just so to say mm. look they really aren't doing what they're meant to be mm. doing what can the NHS do about do about that 
that's a really nice idea that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. That's definitely within the the kind of box of that would be amazing. I think on the flip side of that, the people that at this stage we have to really focus on are the champions of our product in the system. So if you think about, one, say, 1.3 million eligible users in the UK, we would want to find out you know, who are the 10,000 real champions that love what we're doing, want to get behind it, want to share it, want to teach us what we're doing wrong. Those are the people that we, we have to get alongside us as we build out a community. Um, and I think focusing on, on those guys is critical because actually both are represented in the classical team. If you imagine 10 people coming in a forward team, you're going to have some Luddites who say, what the hell is this? I'm not using my phone, you know, whatever, whatever. I don't use smartphone for anything. Reimburse the cost of charging at the wall. And then you're going to have someone saying, this is amazing. I want to work with you guys. I want to make this a success in this hospital. How can I help? And the two approaches are completely different. Mm. And we will only survive because our own resources are limited by focusing on that positive champion. Mm. It's a very nice way of looking at it. You mentioned before that you specifically picked the UK. Mm. Um, was there a reason for that beyond simply the fact that you, you're based here, you live here? Yeah, there is reason. So we, at a macro level, we understand the NHS, uh, NHS system very well. We're very well um, networked in it. We have strong relationships with the, the leadership of the NHS, but also with a lot of doctors and nurses in the system. And navigating the system is not easy. So being able to do that is, is a strategic advantage. It's the most, probably still the most respected health system in the world. So when you think about generating brand value internationally, um, there are some companies that are a step or two further along than us in the health space that generate an evidence base, even through R&D partnerships in the UK, and then take that learning overseas and start to roll out at serious scale. And that's a, a model that, that is, a, is a strong option um, for following. But the main reason is we want to be a product-driven company we know that users in the UK are actually harder to win over on, in many respects than users in Europe. And so if you can bring thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of doctors, nurses and other staff onto our platform here, we're confident that we will understand the dynamics to do it anywhere. So we make the work harder up front, but we'll cash in later with a J-curve growth. That's, that's so interesting. We had... Um uh, a company called Humanizing Autonomy. I was on. just thinking that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they do um, software for uh, human-machine interaction, basically for self-driving uh, vehicles. Um, and they chose London as the, the the proving ground for their software because the traffic here and the, the number of pedestrians, it would have made it more complicated than anywhere else in the world. It's just an interesting way mm. of thinking about picking the hardest mm -hmm. way to prove your... Well, it makes the incredible resilience of your, your business model and the, the efficiency of the solution. Because um, another point, I think, with the healthcare system is there's, there's no cost to the consumer of just walking in and wasting some of the NHS's time. I could have anything wrong with me and mm. I just might be feeling sorry for myself and there's nothing that stops me walking in. Whereas in America, you're acutely aware that walking in could cost you a couple of hundred dollars. I, mm. I don't know the system well enough. I'm making a generalization. Mm. But, you know, there, there is you could see in America a reason where you could have digital triaging where it's like actually um, an AI thing will consult you first. Whereas here it's like, absolutely not. I'm going to get off the bus and I'm going to go straight into Chelsea and Westminster and make sure I'm seen by a person mm. irrespective of what my issues are. Um, so I imagine solving our issues. Um, I, and I always say this when we're pitching 
health tech startups like we have the NHS, we have a specific advantage because it's so so much pressure. There's so much data to be generated uh, that when you go into slightly more um, mm. well capitalized systems like mm. America, you, you've got an easier deal. Mm. Do you have any um, direct competitors? So the way we view our competition is WhatsApp is an entrenched competitor without even knowing it because it's claimed a big part of the user base. On the paging side, there's a, a monopolized system run by Capita in this system, um, who again have strong incentives not to innovate because they've locked in kind of five or 10 year contracts with a lot of NHS organizations. And it's just a cash- For the hardware sales. For, for the for the paging system for replacement of the the bleeps and it's a cash cow for them. They must not believe their luck that they've dined out on that for so long. Mm-hmm. They must yeah. have thought well, the pager is phased out in every other industry, but we're yeah. still going. Fortunately, we have a, a, a health uh, secretary in Matt Hancock who's made axing the facts and getting rid of the pager a big priority. As you know, it sounds like a nice soundbite, but I think is is actually serious about it. Um, so. Another competitor is Microsoft Teams because they've built, this is a classic learning for us. Microsoft are very well scaled throughout the NHS through their 365 offering and they can bundle in free products around that and they've got a very big and uh, well kind of well-trained sales force who can go in and say, oh, we've got this thing called Microsoft Teams. Why don't you roll that out as a communication product that you know you need? But it's the wrong product because if you go and look at who actually uses it, uh, clinicians don't like it. Mm. Um, we we spoke with the guys running this NHS email uh, contract with Skype for Business, and that's an example of a, a massive failure of technology implementation where 1.2 million clinicians in the UK have access to a Skype for Business messaging service, and 15,000 or so have ever logged in. Um, and you know if you if you were a tech company rolling out a, a technology with those statistics, mm. that would be the end of your company. Yeah. Um, but in the NHS, it sort of just floats through and floats along. So those are some of the big kind of corporate competitors. And then there are some other application uh, companies also at an, at an early stage who are having a go at this. Two of us are funded, which are ourselves and, and, a, and a Dutch company who uh, we would predict have, 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 have the, the best likelihood of, of gaining a large network. Mm. Can, we, can we talk about the funding trajectory? Because um, you did get some exciting backers by Stride VC, mm. which is obviously a new uh, VC on the block. Mm. Um, how did those relate? How did that relationship come about? Um, and, and what was pitching for VC like for you? Because mm. you, you raised a considerable amount. How much was it in total? Well, in the seed, we raised about four million dollars. It was slightly over in the end, and in total, we've raised about five and a half. Okay. Um, you raised that on an idea without having built the, the product? So the so no, the initial you round- You got the grant yeah. and the loan, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so relationships with, so we went on a, a funding journey um, last year, which which ended up taking probably somewhere between three and three and six months. And we wanted to do it really well. And we wanted to bring in people that could really help the business. And we think we've put the, the, the company uh, from a funding perspective in the strongest position it could be in because we've got the best consumer backers in the world, mm-hmm. but we've also got some of the best healthcare backers in the world. And their views on things are quite clashing. So we've brought on Stride with Fred and Harry, and we brought in uh, Albion with, with a, a brilliant uh, former doctor called Christoph leading the, the deal on their side, and a number of healthcare angels who are really uh, strong, including a couple of founders of, of, of successful health tech companies. So the advice that we get across the, the spectrum, the networks are really strong. Uh, and, and Fred was instrumental in building a company called PillPack, which is exited to Amazon very recently, 
which which I saw around its genesis whilst um, whilst at MIT and and learning from Elliot, who had just founded PillPack and was teaching our class about some of his his uh, learnings in, in in that journey. So, the fact that those guys have built successful consumer products like Deliveroo and, and Zoopla, as well as healthcare companies, and then having the senior health expertise as well is kind of a a perfect roster of investors and now we've just got to kind of do the hard work and, and, and get to the next stage um so the, what, what is the next stage the next stage will be a series a um and what uh, do you have to do to get there do you think so we have some uh very focused company goals that we're all driving towards which which, which i won't say on here sure, sure. sure but we feel that if we if we get there we're very confident that we can uh, do a round that sets us for scale the seed was the learning round mm-hmm. and the, and the series a will be the the, the scale round. Well, Ollie does marketing, um, and so this mix of cons- something that it, you know any consumer can pick up as a doctor. Um, there's enough of them to be called a consumer potentially, uh, versus places to find them and market your solution to them. How do you think at scale you will acquire users, or are you just mm. going to rely on network effects within mm. the institutions? Mm. So, a fascinating question that we don't have a perfect answer to. The definite truth about healthcare in general is that the unit economics of acquisition are poor that's why a lot of established tech companies don't hunt down healthcare but the flip side of that is once you win these guys mm-hmm. you can in, you can embed users for a long period of time and so the lifetime value of a user might be very high because we see babylon health are, are they are able yeah. to advertise on the tube because they're that consumer facing that mm. they can kind of push their mm. marketing out there. But I'm sort of trying to work out how you reach mm. potential customers. you said 1.3 million potential users mm. in, in the UK. Mm. Mm. That, that's at the, the healthcare professional level, and that's including, so that's, that's clinical uh, users, including all social care staff. Yep. Um, there are actually users beyond that. You know, the NHS is the largest employer in the UK, and actually the number of administrative staff you could look to put on an application like this is very high. And do you, do you go and add locums to that? Do you add uh, pharmacies yep. so you can send your prescription over quickly um, and therefore it's spiders outside of just healthcare professionals as well? Or physios, for instance? Yeah, so, so in terms of outside of healthcare professionals, there are decisions to be made. My view would be if we've figured out the dynamics to really scale something organically among healthcare professionals here, we should do it elsewhere. Um, and, and that's probably where we'll we'll be headed in terms of going wide before we go deep. Mm. Yeah, because it's it's it, it, it's quite considerable mm. your audience. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, very exciting. And and what's your feeling on how you interact with um, some of the other emergent notable healthcare tech companies mm. in the UK? Like, you know, do you have a view on on any of those like Babylon, who you'll look to work with, mm. or are naturally competitors mm. to you? So we have really good relationships with some of these uh, companies doing doing well, like like Babylon Health and uh, Touch Surgery and Medopad. And I think often it's tempting to have technical integration discussions when we talk about us wanting to be a platform company. And we have to be very disciplined in those discussions because actually our roadmap is tight and focused. And we need to just deliver on that and deliver value to lots of people through our product before we look to kind of diversify what we're offering. So. The relationships are generally soft and and just learnings and and uh, shared uh, yes yeah, sh- shared learnings and, and and encouragement really. I was going to say we could do do a little future gazing now. Yeah, yeah. let's talk a bit more generally. From I think we've we've covered a lot of forward. Mm. If if, if, if mm. there's anything else you want to say, we're happy, no, to, happy talk, to move on. Yeah. Um, but yes, there is a looming and 
slightly unpleasant discussion. I don't think any of us need to offer our views on it, but um, it seems that Brexit may be causing some strain or stress on the NHS. Do mm. you have a take on on that mm. and what the outcomes may do to affect the NHS? So I, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on the NHS in Brexit, but two of the thoughts that I would have are there's a lot of commentary around staff. Obviously, the NHS has a major staffing problem and major groups of uh, frontline workforce like nursing staff in hospitals um, have a majority European uh, dynamic. So actually, there, there may be a, a question around are there staff that need to, to leave the UK at any point? And from a pure NHS perspective, that would seem like absolute madness when we've got gaping holes in, yeah. in workforce already to allow that to be an issue. So that's that's uh, an area that's, that's highly popularised. One of the areas that I would be interested in that I've, I've done some research on previously is around uh, macroeconomic factors and corresponding health outcomes. So there's a load of evidence, um, for example, from uh, economic crises in Latin America that have really long-term impact on population health outcomes. So, for example, when there is a crash, what are the 10-year mortality outcomes like? Uh. Generally speaking, there are correlations. It depends what you know what macroeconomic variable you look at, um, whether it's employment or inflation. Um, but I would be aware of that evidence, and if I was a kind of a, a, a someone in, in the health ministry, I'd be thinking about: Are we sure we've relayed the points to the, the government at large that an economic crisis here will have major health repercussions? I mean, it's a slightly tacky reference from me, and I apologise for it in advance, but I think the first time I was made aware of that link between macroeconomics and health um, and mortality rates was the big short. Okay. And watching it when you talked about you know, them celebrating the upside they were going to get from shorting mm. um, all the mortgages, futures, mm. and whatever, and he, he said stop celebrating because that's probably 40,000 people who have lost their lives mm. per you know, X number of mm. GDP that's wiped out. Mm. Um, and it is worth probably matching those conversations up better because of of course it, you know I, I don't know exactly how that would relate to health issues but i don't know whether it's people can't feed themselves proper food or, mm. or just simply um but it is worrying mm. Uh, mm. and i and, and i think the, the the evidence suggests it's a combination of factors as is so often the case in healthcare, there are physical elements to people's um emerging health conditions and there are mental health elements yes so if you you know just to take an example of anyone who is uh, less cash in pocket in the midst of a, an economic crisis, there might be unemployment and all of the fact, feelings and factors of loss around that that lead someone to become depressed, which has you know is clearly a, a, a part of their, their mental health condition. At the same time, they may not be eating well, their diet may deteriorate, as you, as you suggest, they may start smoking because of stress or drinking more, and there are various, various health, uh, physical health um, factors in that. Um, so it, yeah, it would be interesting to to look at those as well. And you know, I'm not an expert on that stuff, but it's it's this interesting point of advocacy around, you know, does 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 the government around Brexit even understand that that might be a long term consequence? Mm. And as we touched on earlier, often it seems often in the policy sphere that decision making isn't governed by ten year or twenty year impact down the line. No, no, and, and you're right, and you don't find that out for so long. Afterwards, it's just like, oh, well, the, the lost generation or, or people who couldn't find employment, well, it sucks to be them. Mm. Do you have any uh, feelings about what the, the biggest health threats might be mm. in, the, in the coming years? Mm. I think one of the highly spoken about and, and very interesting 
places that healthcare is headed is this shift from, we talk about it a lot at Forward, but this shift from health services being done in sick centres like hospitals and shifting towards wellness programmes, which are in terms of their location in a different place, like ideally at home, but certainly in the community. Mm. And in terms of being reactive at present, moving towards a place where the system is proactive and preventative. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously where a lot of public health interventions kick in. The one that I'm really interested in is in psychology and, and mental health care, people learn about this framework called the biopsychosocial framework, which is where whenever someone gets a, a, a health condition, you can say, what are the biological factors here? What are the psychological factors? And what are the social factors that can build up this this uh, build up to this condition and I think we're heading to a place where through all sorts of technology and, and, and data analysis and um, algorithmic programming we can say well actually for example we know the genomic profiles of people so we can we can start to predict what the biological risk profiles are for people in terms of psychological risk as our understanding of neuroscience gets better we'll move from very kind of embryonic models of, of how um, disease pathways fit together particularly for mental health conditions mm. to very molecular personalized understanding and then on the social factors we'll understand you know what are and what are the weightings of various risk factors for causing disease and when you put all of that into modeling you can start to say wow we could at the population level intervene for people's healthcare in a way that is really powerful mm. I was going to say do you, do you think that the uh that the the power in that is going to come from private companies like there's a lot of like we had thriver mm, on there's mm. tw 23 and me dna mm, fit mm. um do you think there's value there or is that pe people getting the information personally and then not really knowing what it means mm. i think in terms of how that will happen a lot of this is like classic American spin-out style, which the landscape for which doesn't exist perfectly in the UK, but it often looks like brilliant researchers with brilliant commercial people. If they're not in the same person, then in a group. Um, because this requires really deep research work that takes a lot of time and, and like world-leading expertise combined with people who know how to navigate commercial systems. Right. Um, and I, I think that's where this is likely to emerge from. That doesn't mean it can't exist in a in a single payer health system like the NHS. It's just that it, it probably in in its current model won't be designed inside it. Because it's interesting. I and mean, Ollie and I have both been Thriver users. Uh, I'm happy to throw mm. mud at the wall with new technologies to to aid self discovery. Mm. Um, and it would be nice to think I could then export some of that information to doctors to assist them in treating me. But it's hard to know whether mm. it feels like I'm trading gimmicky information with them that they. I I felt like that. I, I once tried to say that I had this piece of information from something like Thriver. Mm. No, it was maybe from Atlas Biomed, um, who we also had on. Mm. Um, and the doctor was sort of, he was, I guess because they want to do their own tests mm. to, you know, they don't want to take, they can't, they can't take in someone else's mm. um, information. Mm. I don't know. But as you, you, you know, it, it, they, you can see how it would improve the, the relay of information and the statistical outcome mm. or likelihood that you are going to suffer from something. I think the, the, the point you're touching on, which I, I really am interested by because we're seeing a lot of startups trying to address it in a B2B model in the workplace, is this avoiding mental degradation. Uh, and am I correct in saying that, you know, periods of, of elongated stress can upregulate and downregulate genes, which can mm, definitely really cause harm to people. By the time you get to that, it's like chronic illness mm. 
time. Mm. Do you think the solutions coming out are proficient? Are they are they good enough? Mm. Is it is it good enough for for small startup companies to come into the workplace and try and solve people's mental health, or what what do they need? I think it's incredibly difficult if you're a small startup company in the mental health space to try and run an end-to-end process from brilliant product design and the research elements that, that might go into that to navigating all of the governance, procurement, etc. Of, of, a, of a health system. So you've got to choose which parts of the kind of problem you want to tear apart and solve. Um, and I think a lot of people fail because they try and do everything. I don't know that anyone's cracked that particular problem, and that is one that needs to be cracked, but it's compelling as a future uh, case to the NHS, for example, of, you know, we know what's happening inside the uh, genetic material of your workforce. Um, what, what should we do about that together? And, and, and co-writing the story with the NHS, I think that would be really powerful. Um, again, that, that is certainly something that's uh, on the agenda, and it's something that you know the, the the digital leaders of the NHS definitely want to claim is this area of of genomics. You know the DNA structure was was defined in the UK. Uh, sequencing happened early in the UK, mm. um, and how do we keep ahead of that curve? And how can the NHS play a part in it? Those are mm. good questions to to try and answer. But the danger with that is the advantage to be sought from being forward thinking with CRISPR and stuff like that is to play f- fast and loose. Mm. And unfortunately, I don't think our system lends itself to that. So, mm. you know, some people sort of say, well, the Chinese just push the technology a bit harder, a bit faster, mm. learn more mm. at the expense of maybe some ethical decision making. Mm. And are we hamstrung by the fact mm. that we're, we're going to try and go through the right processes? Mm. Um, because yeah, unfortunately, you, you do learn. Drug discovery is, is mm. you learn by mistakes, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's a very difficult area. Um, what's definitely true is that in healthcare innovation, bulldozing is not possible so innovation must take place disruption is a difficult word to use mm. um you know i've, I've said earlier in this we, we are trying to hold trust as our absolute core value at forward and that means that when we have a decision about data processing we need to make the right decision even if it costs time because the, the hope even from a strategic perspective is that by doing that consistently you do build a brand that is trusted and that, that has that kind of running through its, its bloodstream. Um, and, and, and that's what we're hoping to do. And it, it's tempting to, to cave on those issues in, the, in, you know, in, in, in exchange for progress. And uh, you know, we're determined to hold, to hold those, those things core. I'm growing slightly mindful of your time. So if you're happy, yes. should we move to the just quick fire questions? Yeah. Um, so can we have a prediction for the future from you? Those four C's that are likely to be um, useful factors for people to do interesting things in the 21st century, so communication, collaboration, creativity, and critical thinking, feel like really soft things. But in the tech space, they're really interesting because people talk about how AI is going to, to, to clean out jobs uh, you know, as, as, a, as a concept. And actually, in the, in the context of tech becoming more and more powerful and machines becoming more and more powerful, it's the things that humans can do that machines can't do mm. currently or, or potentially for a long time in the future that are really valuable in that setting. And so those skills are critical ones to have. And you start to see that even when you think in, in healthcare, what are the disciplines that are undisplaceable? And a lot of the softer consulting ology disciplines like rheumatology or hematology that are quite cerebral, mm. that require long-term collaboration with patients, clear communication, critical thinking around their 
um, their diagnosis and, and potentially even creativity around how you structure their their treatment. Those are the disciplines which I think are, are, are really exciting um, for the future. And you know, to that vein, it looks a lot more threatening when you're doing a, a largely manual process like surgery, for example, which which one might imagine it could be replaced by a, by a robot. Mm. Um, that 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 comment probably won't go down well in half of medical uh, world, but um, yeah, that that's an interesting interesting thought. Um, a, a book, startup book, or resource or tool mm. that you you'd recommend as an entrepreneur? Okay, interesting one. Um, I I finished one this morning actually called the Mum Test, which I think a lot of people will have read. But it's about how you know how do we actually ask good questions mm. of of uh, of users of a of a product. That's a fantastic book book I read over Christmas was stolen from my other half Lara which was Becoming by Michelle Obama which everybody seems to be reading hmm. I've heard, yeah. it was great because if nothing else you learn a lot about Obamacare and you do learn lots of things actually but Obamacare and, and the way that Michelle supported um, Barack in, in really being passionate about implementing the, this policy for 20 million previously uninsured Americans and the way that both of them persevered in making that happen was inspiring because mm-hmm. I don't really currently understand the state of it. All you hear is that sort of Trump's trying to tear something, tear it down, and and the next person into mm. into office just seems to slag off the work of the person previously. So it's mm. it, it's unclear to me mm. how successful Obamacare was. Some people deem it as, as not having been successful. Some mm. people say that it was, you know, an epic mm. go at trying mm. to do this. Mm. Do do you have a take on that? Just I have a take on it, and if you're one of the 50 million previously uninsured Americans, it can only be a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, you know, when you think about what that really means, that 20 million people who are it's it's not clearly not perfect, but generally speaking, are able to go to bed at night feeling that their healthcare could be looked after. You know, not not by the absolute premium provider potentially, um, but that that's serious change. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think. It, you know, it gets highly politicised, and it is a very complicated uh, arena. But I think that was an amazing, amazing piece of legislation. Because I, I can't, I sometimes try and put my mind into the anxiety the average American must feel that without insurance, you could wipe out a year's salary just by mm. breaking your leg or, or having mm. a minor car accident, mm. which is something we cannot relate mm. to here. Um, oh yeah, and and not wanting to stretch the definition of quickfire beyond its. Uh, are you telling me off? Absolutely. Are you limited. telling me off? Um, what's the best advice you've ever, you've received in this context? Mm. I had a conversation recently with with someone I mentioned called Tony Young, who's the kind of head of innovation in in, in healthcare in the UK, and he helped my thinking around basically thinking about how our brains work and how people talk about head versus heart when they're making a lot of decisions, and how even our awareness about how our brains are working on certain things like the fact that we have a limbic system in our, our midbrain structures are wired to be emotional processes and how our neocortex and our things like our orbitofrontal cortex are, are wired for executive decision making. If you think about those things, that's your thinking like your with your heart and with your head in a, in a conventional sense. And for me, being aware of that is making a big difference in terms of trying to understand the way that I think mm. and the way that, that, that in general we make decisions. Interesting. Well, because they say the executive side of the brain can compound executive thinking mm. because it starts to form structured thinking that's an analytical, critical, mm. self-critical, critical of emotions, and then you keep doubling down on that because mm. it almost takes over, and then you just have an irrational emotional outburst, but they're not very synergistic. For um, sure. That's interesting. And last but not least, 
Um, we like to try and support uh, each entrepreneur who comes on the show to see if we can try and help uh, with our audience to to kind of empower them to help you. Um, mm. So if there was anything you could ask our audience um, that would be beneficial to forward, what would it be? Would it be doctors using the app mm. or is mm. there, there any other advantages? The, the really big focus for myself and the co-founders at the moment is hiring uh, a, a team that we are convinced can change the world that's 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 where we're at and we're trying to hire absolutely amazing people and we've got 12 roles out for for grabs at the moment um, and so if you are able to float something in, in the network you know there's a, a website which is forwardhealth.co slash jobs so forward slash jobs um, there are four roles in engineering uh, two in product uh, there's a, a role in informatics there's a role in success and community um, so yeah we'd love to have some brilliant people that are listening apply for those roles and we'd love to to come meet you i feel like they'd be ever so lucky to work there it's a very inspiring company mm -hmm. um so yeah thank you very much for your time bonnie really appreciated having yeah, you on really enjoyed it thanks um, a lot guys really enjoyed being here if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our twitter handle is at the startup mike mic or get us an email audio ed at startupmicrodose.com if you're feeling particularly generous of spirit a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.